Welcome to the third special bonus episode for the story that changes everything. In addition to the daily guides, we want to add special conversations now and then along the journey with biblical scholars who've studied and written on these sections of scripture, especially for those who want to dig deeper into the story of God's word. We want to highlight and encourage you to get connected to the new Beacon Bible Commentary published by the Foundry Press. If you'd like to order this helpful commentary series, you can find it at thefoundrypublishing.com. That's thefoundrypublishing.com. The third volume of the commentary series is devoted to the entire book of Exodus and is really well done and beautifully written by one of my former colleagues at Azusa Pacific University, Dr. Junia Pokrivka. I asked another one of my former colleagues, Dr. Marty Michelson, to sit down and have a conversation with me about the book of Exodus. Marty is a minister, a counselor, and a professor. He has a PhD in Old Testament from Nazarene Theological College at the University of Manchester. Marty and I were colleagues for six years at Southern Nazarene University, where Marty taught Old Testament for over 20 years. He's one of my favorite Old Testament thinkers, and we used to have long conversations, drinking Mountain Dew, and talking about Old Testament theology down in the basement of the religion building at SNU. But Marty's one of the reasons I became so deeply interested in not only studying, but also preaching from the Old Testament. So as I thought about Exodus, I knew that this is really one of his specialties. And so I not only wanted to catch up with an old friend, but I wanted to share some of his great insights on this amazing book, the book of Exodus, with you. I know you will thoroughly enjoy this conversation. So thanks for joining me on this continuing journey through the story that changes everything. Here's bonus episode number three, a conversation on Exodus with Dr. Marty Michelson. Well, it is really fun uh, to do two things today, to reconnect with my longtime friend and former colleague in some ways and current colleague in some ways too, uh, Dr. Marty Michelson. But the second fun thing is to get to talk about Exodus. And so I know um, Marty, uh, we're going to have fun uh, talking about this, and the hard part's going to be keeping it under the time limit. Uh, <laughs> but first, Marty, tell folks a little bit about your journey, um, both in faith and scholarship, and, and really what led you to become an Old Testament scholar. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much for the invitation. Great to be here. Uh, I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene, Eugene, Oregon. I uh, grew up at that church my entire uh, elementary, early youth and youth experience. So many great memories from the Eugene First Church of the Nazarene. And when I was 16, I received a call to ministry and an experience in my life, out riding my bike one day, and the Lord called me to the church. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been pursuing that call ever since. Uh, that has led me through several universities, but in the Old Testament context, I would note, uh, really, I, I had great instruction when I attended Northwest Nazarene University for my bachelor's program. I learned Hebrew and Greek there, but when I was at Point Loma Nazarene University, Frank Carver, a New Testament professor, uh, specialized in uh, the Pauline epistles, but he he read and taught me Hebrew or advanced my Hebrew, I should say, and working with Frank Carver and reading a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative uh, by Robert Alter, those, Frank Carver and that book helped me appreciate the dynamic, curious, imaginative um, things that happen when you can read a biblical language and understand there's more texture and nuance going on here than a simple English translation offers us and not bad, not bad texture, right? right? Just there's, there's 
wait a minute, this could be read in this other way. And Frank Carver actually really, he had a playful, smiling, happy, joyous buoyancy to him. And boy, he, he, he won me over. So. Yeah. What are the, Marty, what are the questions that have shaped your old Testament scholarship most across the years? What have been the questions that have driven that? Yeah. So several things. When I, when I first started as a scholar, you've got to sort of identify um, what texts, what, what, what sort of lens you're going to read, because you got to narrow this down for master's thesis and PhD dissertation thesis. And, and I would say that when I started in scripture, it was very, very important for me to focus on violence or texts of violence or where there's warfare hurt things and violence was the issue. So if someone were to look at, say, my dissertation that I wrote, violence issues and issues of violence shaped that in my studies. Uh, conversely, the flip side of that has also become a key issue of my life, namely being a peacemaker. And I identify very much as being a peacemaker. So I started with issues of violence and really came back to issues of peace. And then there are several things that shape the way I, I read scripture. I, I would offer just a couple of things quickly. Um, one would be to say, I, I tell learners in my classes all the time, when we read scripture, we should always be asking ourselves, what does this passage tell us about God? And what is the response of human persons in relation to it? So we're, we're fundamentally asking questions about who is God? And then what does it mean to be human in response to who this God is? Um, there's more that I could say clearly beyond that, but those things shape my perspective. I started with violence. I moved towards peace and trying to discern who God is and what it means to be human persons in response to the work of this God in the world. Hmm. So related to those kinds of questions, let's talk about Exodus. So I, having gone through this uh, project, and it's really been fun to kind of walk people through about three chapters a day. And, uh, and, and you know, it's so shaping for me, Marty, but it feels like Exodus falls in about six or seven different sections broadly. And sure, so yes. let's, let's kind of walk through those. So, so first we get the narratives that set the whole story up and kind of set up Moses as uh, the drawn out one um, who will draw people out of bondage. Uh, but, but talk to me a little bit as you reflect on those early sections of Exodus, what are some of the themes or events or persons that jump out most to you? Sure, sure. And if, if you don't mind, I just want to jump back before I answer your question and respond yeah. to it and say, I tell learners when I teach Genesis and Exodus, um, every core theological theme <laughs> that is found in the story of scripture finds its origin in Genesis and Exodus. Right. So clearly the, the themes get expounded upon and we meet new characters and we meet new timelines and new historical situations that shape them. But the core theological issues of just about every single topic uh, in scripture find their, their, their Genesis in Genesis and Exodus. <laughs> um, having said that, uh, you know, in Exodus one and two, so part of the reason I say that is uh, Genesis, the first chapters in Genesis really set up cosmos, creation, universal themes. And then the primary story of Genesis is family, and it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob issues. And I say that to then distinguish that in Exodus, we get the formation of a community. So mm -hmm. the identity of community becomes important, and that's going to be set in the context of empire, which means it's also set in the context of nations. I will point out early here in your and my conversation, uh, Scott, that uh, Exodus 19 verses 1 through 6, and specifically Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6, I think are absolutely foundational in the book of Exodus. And that's where it says that 
at this at the Sinai experience and before the giving of the Ten Commandments, God says, I have called you to become for me a priestly kingdom and holy nation. So kingdom and nation are in that Exodus 19, 15, 6 phrase, but five and six, excuse me, 19 verses five and six. But then that's what that's what the story of Exodus is about. So back to your question, mm-hmm. Exodus one and two, it starts with uh the a Pharaoh grew up who knew not Joseph. <laughs> Right. And right. so it starts with kingdom language and it shifts from family because there's only 70 of Joseph's generation. And then within just a few chapters, we have all of the multitude of the nations uh, or the, the multitude of the, the people. And then the second thing I would say in those first chapters is the role of women mm-hmm. and the role of women as carriers of faith and standing up to empire and uh, uh, um keeping their allegiance to God over and above allegiance to the Pharaoh. Uh, those two things emerge in those opening chapters, empire and women, and the role that women play in the face of that empire. Yeah, I mean, it's just so fascinating how we don't know Pharaoh's name, but we're barely into the story and we know Shifra and Pua. Right? Absolutely, like that, 100%. Just, one of my favorite parts of Exodus. Um, so l- let me get us both into trouble just a little bit, because I do think all of Exodus, but especially the first few chapters that set up not just this community, but also what empire looks like. I We really have to be careful not to just over, as you said, I, and my, my congregation teases me, I can't get through a Sunday <laughs> without talking about Exodus because it sets up salvation so much. Yes, absolutely. But because of that, we tend to then spiritualize the reading. Yes. There, but there is some serious critique of the way empires deal with cheap labor, <laughs> deal with the other in their midst. And so let's get in trouble just a little bit. So talk a little bit about how do we read Exodus in light of those kinds of economic and justice concerns? Yeah. Yeah, actually, so a couple of things I'll just, I'll join with you in this. And you know, if you actually read the story of Exodus, the book of Exodus, the 40 chapters, if you read the 40 chapters, there is very little what we call sort of theological language. Mm-hmm. So there, there's not language about God will save you from your sins. There's not language about living in the afterlife. There's not language of, um, you know, the sort of classic sort of doctrines of faith, baptism and communion and any of those things. There's actually the the humdrum reality of how do I live my life out as a laborer mm-hmm. first in Egypt and then as a laborer in God's work that becomes part of this call. So, but it's about food and it's about resources and it's about work days of the week. I mean, let's, let's, you know, take, take it as a matter of fact that even in the commandments when they're given, right, you've got your, you shall have no other gods and idols and vain and honor the Sabbath. Sabbath in, as a, as a command is a provocative command about actual labor and work and economics. Um, it's clear that the issue of the Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus his complaint was that his laborers and therefore his means of wealth are going to be taken from him. So again, just sort of plainly speaking in the language, in, if you read the story, there's very, very little about sort of theological language right. and theological uh, verbiage, but there's a lot about being people of God in the midst of your daily work, your, your, your clothing. You know, once you get into the commandments, once they start showing up, the commandments are about how to wear your hair, right? The <laughs> commandments are about uh, what to practice with your sexuality, with your food, with your work, who you live by, how to set up your fences. I mean, in some sense, it, it might come as a contrast to some people, but the 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 Old Testament has more to say about whether or not you can put up a privacy fence. I'm saying that somewhat <laughs> tongue in cheek, 
Oh, it um, reads like an HOA. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> then it does. Then it does about the afterlife. So yeah, right. it's it's really about how we live in this world today. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just you know I I kept thinking about the kind of fears that Pharaoh has. He needs this cheap labor. In fact, this time reading it, I realized when he goes back after them to get them out of the sea yes. or, or to chase them into the sea, it, it really is out of a, feels like it's out of a sense that it's too hard to imagine changing the empire without its dependence upon that cheap labor that he's had. Um, he would rather risk death <laughs> than make the changes necessary, right? As an empire, but also just, um, yeah, the, the ways in which his fears are about their population. And absolutely, um, yeah. he needs them, but if they're too big to become a threat, then it becomes a problem. Yes, um, yes, very much so. So the plague narratives, um, what what happens there? Like, what? So I, I can't let you jump to the plague narratives and skip over Exodus 3, 4. Okay. Uh, so l- l- let me come back just a minute. One of the things that I, 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 I don't know how carefully listeners to a podcast, if they're driving down the road, want to look this up in their passages of scripture, But in Exodus 3, the famous passage, the burning bush, God comes down and says, I've indeed seen, I've heard, I know the suffering and misery cry of my people. Therefore, I have come down. Now, therefore, Moses, I am sending you. So there's a call in the midst of this for Moses to be an agent of God's work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moses says, who am I that I should go? And very powerfully, God says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that as I have freed you, when you have freed the people from Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now, that's pretty close to the, what, how the New International Version is going to read Exodus 3, verses 10 through 12. The key thing there, though, is that that verse, you will worship God on this mountain, in Hebrew is actually the word that can also be translated as actually more frequently translated as work or serve. So the passage is you will work for God on this mountain or you will serve God on this mountain. That becomes important because in the early chapter of the first chapter uh, of Exodus, Exodus 1, I believe it's verses 17 and 18, it says that the Pharaoh worked the, the slave the slave laborers. He, he caused them to be in great toil with great work. So the story is ultimately about a God who's calling people to, into service and work for him. Hmm. That gets reflected in worship. So back then to the plagues in your question, the, the issue of the plagues, and by the way, the Hebrew text and, and then in English translation actually calls them as frequently signs and wonders. Right. And I, I really think signs and wonders is a better, it's, it's both in the English translation, but I really think it's better because they're, they serve as a sign. They serve as a function. When, when we label them plagues and only a few of them are plagues, all of them are signs and wonders. When we la- label them as plagues, we're sort of seeing this sort of dismal, um, uh, uh, bad negative side of it, but all of them serve as signs and wonders. So the question is, what is the sign? And the, the story of the plagues, signs and wonders, is actually a story about a contest between who really has control over the cosmos. And in, in that regard, then, the signs and wonders are a testimony to the fact Pharaoh, who thinks he's in charge and <laughs> controls the cosmos, does not. And the Lord, who's come to redeem these people and bring them out and to be a, a laborer over them and, and partner with them in their service, the Lord controls the cosmos in ways that the Pharaoh cannot. So the signs and wonders are they're a contest and they're a they're a um they're a match. They're a, you know, the um 
you know, you know, uh, uh, athletics stuff better than I do, uh, Scott. <laughs> so, you, you know, it's, it's the, it's the grand series, a kind yeah. of event. And, and a- in every, in every, in every contest of these signs and wonders, the Lord proves the Lord's sovereignty. That's what the function of the signs and wonders are about. Are there any particular uh, of the signs and wonders? Are there any particular ones that always kind of jump out to you or you find significance in? Actually, the, the answer is no. And and actually, I would almost counter that in a curious way and say, in, in Christian story and Christian teaching, I think we may have given too much focus to the signs and wonders. Um, so like, I, I remember many, many years ago uh, in my work as a children's pastor, I had a, uh, a young uh, female teacher teaching a group of four-year-olds a plague a week for 10 weeks. <laughs> and, and I just was like, wow, that's a lot of plagues for four-year-olds, right? It's a lot of, so, so, and my point with that is it, curiously, if you actually read the narrative of the book of Exodus, so the bo- book of Exodus is 40 chapters, the plagues get about five chapters, basically between seven to ch- chapter seven to chapter 12. And they all get smashed in there. And then the last of the signs and wonders, the death of the firstborn, actually gets about a third of the narrative by itself. So my my point with that is, I think the signs and wonders play a very important role as signs and wonders. They're about sovereign control, who is king, who is Lord, who really controls empire and empires. But I also would say, I think think maybe we focus too much on the plagues Mm -hmm. and instead on the lordship issues that really is the umbrella category under which the signs and wonders are really operating. Mm-hmm. Okay. I still love magicians can't make things better. Oh, there, there's no question. There's great, there's great narrative in it. There's no yeah. question about that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. there's no question that there's also, again, I'll go back to, I cited at the start of our conversation, how, um, uh, Robert Alter and uh, uh, my my colleague that taught me scripture at Point Loma engaged me with it. There's actually quite a bit of like um, ironic drama to the story of the signs and wonders. Like if you read it as like this frustrating narrative where Pharaoh wants to be in control and he can't, and at every turn his his hope that his his mastery will prove itself is nullified. It, right. it is a there's there's more drama to the story. And then the challenge of how Moses and Aaron keep getting called back and they have enter these conversations. Um, there, there's there's drama to the story that is imaginative and curious. Yeah. Can you solve the hard heart problem? Can, it, that's a question the narrative asks. Is that what you're asking? Well, I mean, yeah. Well, it's been funny in walking through this with folks here. People always want to ask the Pharaoh's hard heart question. Does Yep. Why, why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? So, so do you have a theory? Uh, you know, I, I would direct people to Terence Fretheim has a really good response to this in his commentary in the interpretation commentary series by Westminster John Knox. Um, essentially, he says this. Uh, he says, uh, the person who who takes their boat, let's say a canoe, out into the, the water and, and some sort of stream, not a lake, um, that person willfully gets out on the water with their canoe. As that person starts canoeing that canoe down into water that becomes a little more rapid, at some point in time, that person loses control of a canoe when the rapids get you know beyond the control of the person. And somewhere in that journey, the person could have 
rowed their canoe out to the, you know, the bank to save right. themselves. But at some point, the they, they no longer are in control. Right. I think that's a good metaphor for trying to understand the hard heartedness of Pharaoh is no. that early on, Pharaoh could have said, OK, Moses, you and your people go out and worship your God. But once Pharaoh commits to try to control, then God will demonstrate to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you're not in control. And so yeah. I think that hard heartedness plays into the, the sort of sweep and scope of the narrative. Yeah, I agree. That's great. Um, so you said earlier, you know, things like uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism aren't in Exodus, but they are kind of. Uh, they are a good point. I, I I will accept that challenge. I accept that. So uh, Passover and the Red Sea at least become imaginative lenses through which we come to understand those things. So so talk about their significance 100%. in the story. 100% agree with you. So here's where I, I said earlier that in Genesis and Exodus, we get the core traditions that emerge through this biblical story. So without question, what Jesus does at the celebration of the Last Supper that we inaugurate as communion, the Esca, Esca, the uh, Eucharist event and all that comes with it, that finds its genesis and origin in the Passover. And that finds its genesis and origin in these Exodus 12, 13 words. There's no question that baptism is a passing through the waters. And that is no question. That is what the Exodus 14 and the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15 celebrate. So yes, so what I would say then here is that Exodus 15, which is the song of the sea and Miriam's song, the, the, that the Lord is king, that the Lord is the warrior and horse and rider he has cast into the sea. That's, that's a passing through the water story, 100%. In Exodus, it's not baptism because baptism hasn't become what we understand baptism. To, but there's no question that that passing through the water and, and leaving one kind of empire and ending up on the other side of the water and becoming a different kind of person, that is picked up in our language and our belief about what Christian baptism is, where, of course, in our Christian baptism, we talk about dying to the old self and being reborn to the new, and it's submerging ourselves into the water. So, yeah, there's the, the, there, there is categories that develop our theological themes that emerge in these stories, no question. Marty, I think of the Passover meal itself as such an important meal of identification um, of, of kind of coming to this place of deciding which of these empires am, am I going to identify with? It, I mean, think with me just a little bit. What What's your sense of what what is God trying to do through the Passover event? And, and let me say, first of all, this was the first time going through it where I I saw so clearly when we get to that section, it ceases to be narrative and becomes liturgy. Like it, it's, yeah. it tells the story in a way for us to constantly re-embody it. So, so first of all, I love what you just said. There's several things I love about what you just said. First of all, you just said, and, and here you're, you know, mid-career pastor, been studying scripture your whole life. <laughs> and you're like, I just saw something for the first time, right? Yeah. That's, that's one of the wonderful things about our reading of scripture. But, but yeah, let me go back. So let me cite two things that immediately come to mind. First, in, in, in the most appropriate and best sense, I would want people to note that when Jesus sits down with his disciples at the event we call the Last Supper, Jesus was actually just sitting down to something Jesus and the disciples did every year, which was to celebrate Passover. Now, I don't mean to make that mundane and insignificant. In fact, I want to highlight that this had been and a memory, a, a, an anniversary event 
This was this, you know, we 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 celebrate Christmas every year because it's important to us. They celebrated Passover every year because it was important to them. Now, Jesus clearly redefines the Passover elements in that in that night with his disciples. So that's significant. But I, I first would want to call our attention to the fact that Jesus was just, in some sense, just remembering what God had already done back to the Exodus. The second thing I would call out is that when we read the story in Exodus, and you highlighted this with your liturgical claims, it is absolutely uh, clear in the context of what we read Exodus 12, Exodus 12, 13, there when the story is told to us, that the, the narrative is about when your children ask you what happened on this night, when your children come to you and ask, why do we on all other needs, nights eat leavened bread, but on this night we eat unleavened bread, they are, they are marking the significance of this as being transformative for the generations of their family's understanding. And I do think there's something so crucial about the way in which children are vocally, explicitly, demonstrably part of the story. This story is intended to shape generational faith. This story is intended to what I'll use the language of inculturate, that is bring into culture, um, this belief uh, for young people so that they become belief-filled, beliefful citizens of this community for their entire life story. So there's, there's a lot going on. Those are just two things that come to mind for me. Yeah. Okay, so you're the reason I started reading so much Walter Brueggemann in the first place, but uh, <laughs> let's talk uh, myth of scarcity and liturgy of abundance. So the people get to the wilderness. Um, why is the wilderness being on the other side of the sea so important? And what is God doing with these people in the wilderness? Yeah, there's so much there. Clearly, uh, trust is a key fa factor. Trust in the belief that the Lord provides all things is crucial in what this, this story is about. The story demonstrates to us with manna and quail that the Lord can be trusted, mm -hmm. that the Lord provides that which is sufficient. Uh, in some sense, if we were to really work through these stories, we'd point out that the Lord only provides the, the bare minimal sustaining elements that are part of the story. Um, you know, clearly when, when manna runs out for the Israelites, they seem to be pretty happy with it. It didn't it wasn't terribly flavorful and good to eat, but through the process, the Lord demonstrates that the Lord can sustain a people even in the wilderness. And so there's, there's much that is there. Another important element of the manna and quail story and the water from rock and all that happens there is that, again, the Lord can be the one that can be relied upon, even when it seems like there's no water in the wilderness, the Lord can provide. And issues of water and, and water maintenance for Israelites are very important part of the ancient Near Eastern culture. The other thing I would note is that in the gathering of the manna, there is described to us in the Exodus a redistribution effort so that even though some people gather more and some people gather less, when they sit down and redistribute the elements so that everybody gets some, everybody gets enough. And there's two things I would cite in that. One, we've already said today that this is a, a, a story about food. And in this sense, it's about a socializing of the economy of redistribution of goods and resources so everybody has enough to eat. So that's just an important part. And again, it's about food and food distribution. The second thing I would note is that in the stories in the gospels, 
And particularly you see this in Mark's gospel, but in each of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, when Jesus eats with the disciples at the feeding of the 5,000, excuse me, eats with the people at the feeding of the 5,000, each of the narratives in the gospel say, and all ate and were satisfied. <laughs> and I absolutely believe that the food distribution ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, again, is reflecting back on this Exodus story that the food isn't just for a few. Food is for the all. All ate and are satisfied. So again, there's there's a lot going on with water, manna, quail stories. And ultimately, it's about the Lord being the provider, but it's also about food redistribution in ways that doesn't create the hierarchies that had existed in Egypt where the Pharaoh took everything. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and learning to live by a, a, a liturgy that then keeps us from fearing the other. But, Absolutely. But trust that not only that God will supply, but there is enough for everybody if food is redistribute, re, redistributed in ways that, that, that share that abundance. And of course, the liturgy of abundance there, to use Walter Brueggemann's phrase, is if we believe that the Lord provides enough and we share equitably, there will be enough. And that's what scripture has testimony to over and over again. Uh, and, and we don't believe what the empire or Pharaoh wants us to believe. That is, there's not enough. I'm saving just myself. Yeah. Okay, so you, you already pointed out the significance of Exodus 19. They get to the, um, they get to the mountain. And now we begin to get the law. So talk a yep. little bit about chapter 20, about the Decalogue. Uh, if you want to, you can go ahead and move into the case laws and those kinds of things. Um, sure, sure. Talk a little bit about the significance of the law. Yeah, so a couple of things I would note here. First, let me note for people reading scripture that when they get to Sinai at Exodus 19, that story of getting to Sinai and receiving the law does not end until Numbers chapter 10. So it's it's the rest, it's the next 20 chapters in the book of Exodus. It's 20 plus chapters in the book of Leviticus and another 10 chapters in Numbers, which is just a way of saying there's a whole lot of material here at what happens at Sinai. So yeah, we're not going to talk about all of that here. Let me come back. I think Exodus 19 verses five through six is central in the biblical story. I'll quote it again because I think it's so important. When they get to the mountain, remember, as I shared earlier, God in Exodus three had said, uh, I will be with you. This will be the sign that I have been with you when you get to the mountain, you will serve or work for or worship God on this mountain. So Exodus 19 is getting to the mountain. When they get to the mountain, God says, um, indeed, all of the nations are mine. I brought you out on eagle's wings and you will become for me priestly kingdom, holy nation. I think that is the most important claim of Old Testament that then gets picked up in the teaching of Jesus ever so slightly shifted, but it's really not a shift. When Jesus shows up and says, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. So notice the language of Jesus is kingdom. And then the language of Exodus is nation and kingdom. The language of Jesus is kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. So God heaven. And the language of Exodus was priestly or holy. And I think they're, they're dealing with the same sort of polarity. We exist as a kingdom, a nation, but how do we exist as a kingdom or a nation that exemplifies God's holy priestly order. So everything about what emerges in the commandments and all of them that emerge is ultimately about becoming kingdom and becoming nation, but it's about becoming a unique kind of kingdom and a unique kind of nation. 
so then I'll just highlight a couple of things in that regard. One, uh, the commandments. The commandments, we, we're so sort of familiar with them because you know, they're, they're posted in our churches. They're posted in most American courthouses. Supposedly, we're supposed to memorize them. I say that because if you actually ask most Christians, they don't know the Ten Commandments. They really struggle. They can get about six. Um, but but when you think about them, they're, they're, they're what I would call antiphonal. So that's the anti-voice, the anti-sound of what Pharaoh had done. So the last five commandments, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, envy. Those are what, those are what Pharaoh had done. Pharaoh was murderous to children. He's willing to take daughters and, and people into his service. He's going to lie and envy all of the resources, right? He's going to steal the resources for himself. So again, what, what the Lord is saying in the commandments is the empire of my kingdom's making will be antiphonal to it. It'll be the opposite of the Pharaoh's way of being. Of course, it also is going to be, you know, no other gods, no other idols, no, no other, don't, don't take the Lord's name in vain. But then the two other things, the Sabbath and the father and mother. Um, in honoring father and mother, there's actually an indictment against the killing of the firstborn at some level in the story. So this is a reparation and a fixing of parent-child relationships that are honored and integrous. Hmm. But then critically, the Sabbath. In our American culture, I think we've come to believe that a 40-hour work week is the norm. And it, it hasn't historically, for most of human history, been the norm. And quite frankly, in most uh, industries of work prior to the industrial age, so anybody who's a rancher, a farmer, a breeder, you just have to work when your crops need to be worked on. You, you, don't, you don't get up and go to work at nine to five. You work when you're... So what, what's really stark about the, the Ten Commandments and the commandment to Sabbath is that the Lord, unlike Pharaoh, is saying, you, not only you get to take a break, but I demand that you take a break so that you can reorient your life and worship. So there's more that I could say, but I'm talking a lot, yeah. so I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, that's great. Um, so the, uh, the second thing, Marty, that I discovered for the first time going through it this time <laughs> was Exodus 32 through 34, so the golden yes. calf. Yes. So this is conversation, intercession with God. Um, Moses deciding, you know, begging God not to make him go on their own. How much of that reflected, and I think it's Fretheim who makes this, this point, how much of the language of Genesis 6 through 8, the Noah story, kind of is reflective there that we have this kind of moment of God's discovery of how people are going to act, but then God's character and how God is going to respond to, to humanness. Um, so talk a little bit about it. It's such those three chapters are just so critical. It feels like um, not just because of the, the awfulness of, I mean, we just talked about the Decalogue, but it feels like we're just getting the Decalogue and the people are down, down at the bottom already violating commands one and two and then Moses and God get to have a conversation about God's name um, up on yep. the mountain. So, yeah. So talk about Exodus 34 through 36. Or so 30, again, you're, highlighting, you're highlighting the complexity. I think I would note, um, I, I would say it's casually something like this. Uh, life in the real world is hard. And being faithful as people of God in the real world is hard. And so we read a story like this. I think we, we go back and we read it and we're like, you know, these, these Israelites, they couldn't figure it out. God had done all of this work for them. And they, you know, right away, they're unfaithful and they lack trust. Mm 
And I think I would rather say something like, I think that's true for all of us, right? We, right. we all can turn away from the ideal that God calls us to and, and for the Israelites in that moment, and maybe for ourselves in moments of our lives, it feels like God isn't quite right there. And so the Israelites in this moment of where is God and where did Moses go and what are we supposed to do? They operate as humans do. They operate out of a fearfulness and how do we move forward? And we need someone to guide us. We need someone to direct us. So I would, I would offer sort of a charitable reading of the Israelites there and say, we are like them. They're like us. It is a whole lot easier when someone is standing in front of you saying, go here, do this. And the, the challenge of faith is always, how do we live faithfully when it doesn't feel like God is right there telling us exactly what to do? I think that's across the arc of the story. The other thing that I think is really important in the story is that in this moment, like other moments in Old Testament narrative, the Lord could have said, you know what? Fine. I'm done. I'm done with you people. Let's just wipe you out and start over. And in a remarkable story of God's gracious compassion, the Lord doesn't do that, right? And so again, you could go back to the, the flood story. Um, the, the Lord could have wiped out everybody, including Noah, but God saves Noah. The, the story of Adam and Eve, God could have just killed Adam and Eve if God wanted to. God had said, the day that you eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, you will die. So the, the, curious, the curious aspect of this story is that when God has sort of, if you'd say the, the, the right to kill and to, to start all over, there's something curious about God's compassionate grace, and it's clearly articulated in Exodus 34, where God says that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And this story becomes a testimony of the fact of what will become true across scripture. Humans are unpredictably but predictably faithless, and God in the face of that remains faithful. Is that uh, what? What does the golden calf represent for them, Marty? I, I mean, it was in the text noticing the Aaron and the people build the golden calf, but but then say, "Hey, we're going to have this festival to Yahweh." So it feels like the golden calf is not so much. Uh, I guess I would say it this way: a desertion of the worship of Yahweh. It just seems like the challenge of idolatry is syncretism. That the challenge of idolatry is somehow blending these various gods of fertility with the gods of Yahweh. Is that the right way to kind of think about about some of that stuff? Yeah. So this is a complex one because the more the more we dig down into it, the more I'm like, well, let's open up the passage, right? Let's, right, yeah. let's read what it says. <laughs> um, so two things I would note on that: there's 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 ways to read the passage that are very judgmental against the Israelites, and and the judgmental language would be. They failed to believe in God. They failed to follow God. They turn away right away. They are faithless and evil, awful people. Right. There's a little more uh, complimentary or generous charitable ways to read the passage. And one of those charitable ways is to believe that the, that the, the making of the golden calf on top of the golden calf was the hidden invisible God riding on it. Right. And that's really what they're focused on. That's also hard to read, given what the biblical passage says. Um, but but the issue of syncretism, I, I'm not sure if syncretism is the biggest issue, as much as just the the ease with which it's it's easy to believe that God is no longer directing us. Hmm. So if God's not right here in front of us, then we must be alone and we must be left on our own devices. 
And the story, I think, demonstrates again and again across the scriptural, the biblical narrative, God remains present even when God doesn't feel like God is present. And I, I'll give just two quick examples of that. That certainly is the case for Joseph in Egypt, when Joseph in the, in the Genesis ends up there. And I would also note, curiously, the Gospels sort of tell us the same reality. And here's where the Gospels tell us that. After Jesus is resurrected and he's on the earth for another 40 days before he ascends to heaven, Jesus says to his disciples, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, um, go ye therefore into all the world. I will be with you always, right? So, but, but he leaves, right? Jesus <laughs> leaves. And, and I do think that is, that, is the, that is the hard part for Christian communities and belief-filled communities is holding in, in um, balance the sense that we believe God is with us, now with us, and yet also the ambiguity of feeling like in some of the days of our life, like, what am I supposed to do now, God? Where are you? Um, and I think that's what this story is really struggling with is how do you how do you believe God's presence is operative and generative and here when it sometimes feels like God isn't here? Which then is a good transition into just thinking just for a couple of minutes about the tabernacle. Yes. yes. It made me think in the, the latter chapters about finally kind of getting around to building the beauty of the tabernacle that the text does try to try to balance the transcendence and the eminence of God. Yes. But it made me think for the first time, neither is easy to believe, but in some ways the transcendence of God, if I can get there, I, I can affirm it maybe, and maybe it's, it's just in our current day thinking about things like, Charles E. Taylor in the imminent frame, right? That we're, we're right, right. Is, like the Israelites, it may be the eminence of God that is the hardest thing for us to really fully embrace and, and, uh, and hold on to. And so the tabernacle becomes God's willingness to placate and, and give a visible demonstration to the people that God is, is truly eminent and present. present. Is, that, is that the right yeah. way to think about the tabernacle? So two things. First, just because it might be in, enjoyable for some in your audience to hear, there's a rabbinic tradition that believes not not with the tabernacle, but the pillar of cloud by day and the the mm -hmm. the uh, or the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. There's a rabbinic tradition that actually sort of posits and believes that those are actually God's legs. <laughs> those are God's legs. So God is actually like walking in the desert with them, right? And yeah. of course, God is too big to be seen. But but right. I, but I would share that. And again, that's not a biblical statement. That's a rabbinic interpretive notion. But but then yes, what you're what you're saying and what you're emphasizing there, and what the rabbinic tradition is trying to understand is that God was walking with them in the wilderness, and the tabernacle becomes the place where God is housed with them. And here I'd go back to two things. When I go backwards in Genesis and I'll go forward to the gospels, backward to Genesis, the story in Genesis two and three is that God is in the garden with the humans, you know, comes down to hang out with them. God is with them in the garden. Clearly the testimony of Jesus in the gospel, God with us, Emmanuel walks and talks with people, uh, models who Jesus, who, who God is when God is in the world. But yeah, tabernacle then, is that same intent intending reality, trying to create an intention. The tabernacle is the place where God houses God's self, where God lives in the midst of these people. You know as well as I do, Scott, that the Christian tradition and Jewish tradition don't actually believe that the tabernacle and that eventually the temple actually houses God. Like God can't get small enough to get in there. 
but it but it also symbolically very 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 powerfully becomes the place where the glory of god is present and ever present and always there um the the last lines of the book of exodus without question give emphasis to the fact that the cloud of the lord the glory of the lord moves in among these people and and curiously the lord will live in the midst of them and not at the edge of their camp if if your audience doesn't know uh, the tabernacle that the israelites were told to construct their um to, to live as tribes literally in the 12 of them surrounded around the tabernacle hmm. so that the tabernacle is quite categorically and quite physically geographically god in the midst of them so yeah god god being there is very very powerful yeah all right so help us we're about to uh transition to leviticus so okay be the bridge what should we begin to look for as we transition from i I mean exodus almost ends with like a good western like we're we're just walking off with god into the distance (laughs) Uh, but as you said like sinai actually takes up the next tons of chapters through Leviticus and Numbers. So what are we going to look for as we go to Leviticus? Uh, So I would would focus people to focus on broad categories in Leviticus because you can get caught up in the the mundane details. (laughs) But I would would draw attention to a few things. One, the first several chapters, specifically five and six chapters of Leviticus, are about the the different kinds of sacrifices or offerings that are made available. And, And they're both offerings and sacrifices. Sacrifice here being defined as an animal being uh, slain, and an offering can inv- include grain offerings, etc. Um, I, I characterize o- offerings and sacrifices as something like gifts. And again, for the sake of time, I can't get into all of this here. But with with your best friends or your your romantic partners, you give them gifts, and right. they give you gifts back. Because part of living in a good relationship with people is that reciprocity of exchange and enjoying times together. And so I don't want to undersell the theological significance of offerings and sacrifices, but I also want to highlight that there's something just about a reciprocity of an exchange here. There's a partnership that goes in in what happens with offerings and sacrifices. Second thing that I would offer in Leviticus is there's something very important about the order and orderedness of priests and priestly duties. So there's there's what becomes separated as the sort of, uh, in, in biblical term or in, in uh, scholarly terms, we call the sacred and the profane, um, the holy and the uh, uh, not so holy categories of life. And But there's there's also this importance that there are some people that point us to the holy and there are rituals and routines and liturgy and cultured practices and anniversary events, the function of which call us back. So I could give numerous examples of it, but I'll just jump into the language of of romantic life. Um, If partners don't get together with some frequently, frequency to have a date night, then that romantic partnership begins to sort of fizzle out or it has the potential to fizzle out. If, If couples don't celebrate their anniversaries, they're not reminded of why they got together in the first place and what's significant there. And, and so, again, there's a lot of detail that's significant in Leviticus, but I would say part of it is about structures and routines to life that call us back to remembrances and remembering so we can remember that we are members of this sacred community. So those are three things I would 
call out uh, offerings and sacrifice, the role of priests and liturgy, and then the function of sort of anniversary events and calendared events that call us to remember we live differently in the world. Yeah, absolutely. We can channel our inner Jamie Smith. If we don't do intentional <laughs> liturgies that shape us in our relationship with God, some other liturgies will take their place and we'll be absolutely 100%. 100%. All right. Hey, Marty, thank you so much, man. This has been really helpful. And thanks for being the kind of inner Old Testament voice in my head, anyway, and for being <laughs> the one who's messed me up in all these ways. And so thanks. Thanks for helping us. Well, as long as we're messed up building to become priests of the kingdom, holy nation, and to make it where it becomes more on earth like it already is in heaven, then we're on the right track. We're on the right track. All right. Thanks, friend. You got peace to you. Thanks for listening in on this bonus conversation. If you haven't joined the journey through the story that changes everything, it's not too late to start. You don't even have to go back to the beginning. Just start right where you are and catch up on the other sections later. If you haven't done it yet, subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And like our The Story That Changes Everything Facebook page so we can keep in touch with you. May God bless you and speak to you as we continue to explore God's Word together.